0: Don't rely on your good works. Our text this morning is Romans chapter 3 verses 1 through 20. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing upon us this morning. We pray for the preacher and the hearer alike that you'd bless us with the power of the Holy Spirit for one to preach accurately, for one to hear accurately, that we might be doers of your word. For we pray this in Jesus name. Amen. I once went fishing with my kids and there were fish jumping up everywhere, but we weren't catching anything. Because we were working with the wrong tools, our bait and lures. We could have worked as hard and as long as there was daylight, and it still would have resulted in nothing. For Jews and Gentiles, having Jesus right before them offering salvation will amount to nothing if they are working with the wrong tools, which in this case is our own works of righteousness. This morning we'll see in Romans chapter 3 that works aren't enough works aren't enough. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 3 beginning in verse 1. Romans chapter 3 verse 1. Now Paul's continuing his trajectory from last week as we finished off chapter 2 and he says here, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way to begin with the Jews are entrusted with the oracles of God. Now you may remember how we ended last week. Verse 29 of chapter 2 says, But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And so Paul presents this idea that a true Jew is one who has been converted inwardly. He alludes to the fact that Jew and Gentile together are the true people of God, those who've had their hearts made alive, not those who are trying to work their way in through the works of the law. And so now the question may arise, what value is there in being a Jew? And he says, much in every way. Though if appraised fairly, the Jew has a great privilege. Notice that they were chosen to be the messengers of God to the world. They were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, the word oracle there is logia. Sound familiar? It's got the same root as logos. So, they're entrusted with the logia, the oracles of God. God's sayings to his people, they're entrusted with this. It also included the covenant promises Going back to the headwaters of the Abrahamic covenant, God promises to be with his people, to bless his people, and to have his presence with his people. He promises them a land, a land which is filled with symbolism connected in with the word of God. He made them a great and numerous people. And God's unique presence was with his people in the temple. Nobody else in the entire world had the temple of God the very presence of God with the people of God. They had the priesthood. They were a nation of priests that had special priests. They were to be outward facing to the world, calling the nations in to come and worship the true and living God. They had the prophets who gave God's utterance to the people. They had kings, mighty kings from the line of David. They had his holy word, but they turned inward. And the blessing of being a blessing turned into a curse. Verse 3, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means let God be true, and everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Now Paul says they were unfaithful. They were faithless with these things, these great blessings that they had as a people of God and unfaithful in the context of being entrusted with the oracles of God. What did they do? They kept it to themselves. They looked down on the Gentiles, even with violent disgust. If you look at how Israel was structured, even the way God put them into the land in a nation that abutted the sea, their backs were against the sea, and they were to be facing out to the east to the nations. Their temple reflects this. Its doorway opens to the east. Everything is saying to the nations, come in, come in. They were supposed to call the nations in. They were to be a shining light on the hill as they were in the days of Solomon when Queen Sheba came. They were to call the nations in and the nations would say, what a great people who have the true and living God. But by the time of Jesus, they kept it to themselves. They looked down on the Gentiles, their filthy dogs, Got to wash our hands whenever we come in contact with them. Got to keep this to ourselves. And maybe, just maybe, if they conform exactly to all of our religious scruples, we might let them in to become a Jew. They built up huge extra-biblical barriers with all the teachings of the rabbis that obscured the word of God and ended up breaking the word of God. And so Jesus has to say, You have heard it said, but I say to you. They were open to the charge of hypocrisy, and yet this is no excuse to dismiss God and the faith. Going on to verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? Israel had been a terrible messenger. Not only had they not taken the oracles of God to the nations, They had made the nations despise Yahweh and his ways through their unrighteousness. In the old covenant, they wanted to be like the nations, and though they'd been given all these gifts of the presence of God, though they'd been given him his word, they had his temple and his unique place among the nations, and yet they wanted to be like the nations. They tried to outdo the nations in their idolatry, and coming out of the exile, They kept it to themselves and pushed the nations back instead of bringing them in. It's a similar argument. It's a similar argument. Does their sin and their human inability make God unrighteous when he judges them? Of course not. God is holy and must judge in holiness. Going on to verse 7. But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come As some people slanderously charge us with saying Their condemnation is just Now this is a similar argument to Why if God created the world where Adam could fall Are the children of Adam still condemned You've probably heard somebody say that to you before, right? Maybe you've even thought it If God created a world where sin could come into the world Why are we held accountable to these things? If our sin shows God's glory in contrast to us, why not sin more so God might be shown as more glorious? Now, what does Paul do here? Does he create what we call a theodicy? A theodicy is a theological, philosophical word for the explanation of the problem of evil. Does Paul here construct a great argument for the reason of the problem of evil? Does he try to craft an explanation? No, he says they are condemned. They are condemned. But there is truth in there for a proper perspective for the faithful. We are not purposely to sin, but if we do, God is shown to be glorious, to be rich in mercy, to be generous with grace because we receive forgiveness in Christ. Verse 9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin As it is written, none is righteous, no not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. In the matter of raw salvation, the Jew is just a son of Adam, just like a Gentile. Everybody's the same and accounted after the fall. No one's getting into heaven through their own works because we can't produce good enough works The great benefit of being a messenger entrusted with the logia, the oracles of God, is worthless without faith. Friends, I want to say this this morning to us. Here we stand 2,000 years deep into the age of the kingdom's arrival. 2,000 years after these words were spoken. You have the oracles of God. We have the oracles of God. What are we doing with so great a message? Israel should have been a light shining on a hill Jerusalem and her temple calling the nations to repentance And to turn to God Her priests and kings showing the world What the world will be like when heaven comes to earth But they relied on their works And their works were not enough Just fruit of sinful human beings Verse 12 All have turned aside Together they have become worthless No one does good Not even one Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The Jew who relies on his ethnic bloodline and doing the law as a work is in a worse position than the unbelieving Gentile. He should have known better. Do we do this sometimes? Do we as Christians make these kind of assumptions about ourselves? Do we think, once saved, always saved, we can just rest on our laurels now? You know, out in California, there's a lot of Armenians, not Armenians, Armenians from Armenia. And I would meet Armenians, and they'd find out that I was a pastor, and they would always say, Armenia, first Christian nation. It's true. They were the first major kingdom to convert to the Christian faith. Around 500 AD. That was a long time ago. But so what? Now it's a great blessing if they're still walking in faithfulness. If they're trusting in Christ. If they're bringing the word of God to bear for the nations. If they're doing it themselves but if they're just going to stand upon their laurels and say, I'm Armenian, Armenia, first Christian nation. If we say, we are Presbyterians 500 years deep in the Scottish Kirk, it means nothing without faith. It means nothing without faith in Christ. It means nothing without doing what he says in the power of the spirit. The Christian who relies on his church affiliation, his baptism, his good works, but doesn't trust in God, questions the miracles of the Bible and the mysteries of the faith is also in a worse position than an unbeliever because on the last day they will be held accountable for what they knew and they knew much and didn't do anything with it. If you're not trusting in Christ alone you're trusting in fallen human abilities and works and humans are no position to negotiate salvation with a holy God. Can I hear an amen to that? Verse 19 now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in a sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. If you're relying on the works of the law, you're under the law and it was never meant to keep a person there. So what is the point of the law? We'll see over and over again. Jesus will say things like this. The Apostle Paul will say things like this. The law still stands. The law wasn't abrogated. The law doesn't disappear with the coming of the new covenant. It's transformed and fulfilled in Jesus. But even those parts that we think are fully done away with, when you think about it, the temple, where's our temple? It's right here, stone upon stone priesthood. There it was in the Old Testament. Here it is among us. We're a nation of priests to the nations. So even those things that seem not to have an analog into the New Covenant, when you begin to think about it, there's richness of application there. So what's the use of the law in the New Covenant? Well, theologians speak of the threefold use of the law. I've talked about this before, but for some of you this may be new. First use of the law. And that is, in particular, the Ten Commandments. But then through the Ten Commandments, the fullness of the Old Testament shows how these things were unpacked. But what is the first use of the law? It holds a mirror of God's holy demands and drives us to Jesus. No one is saved through obedience to the law. We look at the Ten Commandments. We realize suddenly we've broken them, many of them, maybe all of them, all the time our hearts are factories of idolatry our hearts of enterprise of sin and so we see god's law and we realize that we're undone we're never going to reach his holy standard and so it pushes us in desperation to god to deliver us it turns us to the lord jesus christ the second use of the law is to create good laws for godly societies We see that all good societies all over the world, whether they be Christian or not, at this point in the age of the world have been influenced by Christendom, and behind their laws are the Ten Commandments. And so we see the second use of the law is good laws for godly societies. And the third use of the law is for us, brethren, having become the people of God. The law informs us how we are to live as the people of God. So let's go back to the first use of the law. No one can fulfill the law through raw, perfect obedience. No one perfectly does the works of the law except Jesus. Except Jesus! No one anywhere has ever perfectly done the law since the fall. Everyone breaks the law. And if we're left up to us, there would be no hope. We'd be lost, under the wrath, The judgment of a holy God who's not changing his standards. No one's ever done the works of the law except Jesus. Jesus did. Works aren't enough for us. But thank God for Jesus who worked for our salvation with his sweaty, bloody, and totally self-giving life, death, and resurrection. Can I hear an amen to that? In my last sermon, I told you how the Byzantines of Constantinople worked to defeat the Muslim Arabs in 677 with excellent tactics, motivated soldiers and sailors, and amazing new weapons. But this was when the Byzantine Empire was young and vigorous. When the Muslim Ottomans came to besiege Constantinople in 1453, some 800 years later, the Byzantine Empire was old, shrunken, and creaky and their works of warfare were vastly outclassed and outnumbered by the motivated Ottomans, soldiers, and sailors, with an amazing new weapon and excellent tactics, and the great Christian city fell with a shattering crash. When the human race fell, Adam and Eve were young and vigorous, but they relied on their own works and fell with a shattering crash. The human race is now old, shrunken, and creaky, And the gulf between our pathetic, sinful works of self-righteousness and God's holiness is as infinite as the gulf between here and the edge of the cosmos. Thank God for Jesus, who saves us and unites us to him, so that his infinite works of righteousness become ours in salvation. Because this morning, as we've seen in Romans chapter 3, works aren't enough. Soli deo Gloria to God alone be the glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing upon us. We pray that we would hear your word, we would do your word, even this week here in Buda, Texas. Bless us in the power of the Spirit, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.